Well, hey, if you have a Bible, grab it, turn with me to John chapter 12. And uh, as you get there, I just want to tell you where we're going in the weeks ahead. I'm excited for the weeks ahead. Uh, today, we're going to begin the journey of preparing our hearts for Easter next Sunday. And so um, we're going to take a look at the events of Palm Sunday. Uh, that'll lead us into our Good Friday service that we will have coming this week. And uh, as uh, we all look forward to next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And so um, that's kind of where we're headed after Easter. Uh, we're going to be in the book of First Peter. I think it's going to be just such a fitting study for us, a fitting book for us to jump into. And so I'm really, really excited uh, the, the first Sunday after Easter for us to jump into First Peter. So that's where we're going in the weeks ahead. But let's get into what we're talking about today. And uh, as we get ready for John chapter 12, I just want to ask you a question. Uh, when's the last time you had asked God for something, you had hoped for something, you really wanted him to give you something, and he didn't, and you were glad in the long run that he didn't give you what you had asked for? Uh, this idea is the idea that the great theologian Garth Brooks sung about in his 1990 hit, Unanswered Prayers. Uh, all of us have had those things from our past where it's like we were asking God for it, we wanted it, we were hoping for it, and God in his sovereignty, and in the long run we saw, God in his goodness to us did not give us what we were asking for. And we only got later why he didn't. And so I, I would disagree with the great theologian Garth on his uh, title, Unanswered Prayers. I think there are things that God says no to because we think we know what we want, but God ultimately knows what we need. And so um, uh, just to kind of prime us into where we're going in the message today uh, in John chapter 12, I just want to stop you already. And if you're watching with your family or your small group members, uh, if you're even just sitting at home, to, uh, take some time to think about this or talk about this. When has there been a time in your life you had asked God for something, you didn't get it, and looking back, you were so glad that you didn't? It can be a lighthearted example of something you're asking for as a kid. It could be a bit more serious example of something even recently. But take some time to talk about what you're asking God for. You never got it. And looking back, you're so glad he didn't give it to you. And so as we turn to John chapter 12 today, uh, we're going to see something we find in the Gospels called the triumphal entry. If you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with this scene. Uh, but as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, crowds are going to gather. And these crowds, they want something. And I would even say what they want is a good thing. They want a Messiah. Um, but most in the crowds as they gather in as Jesus enters Jerusalem, they're wanting a Messiah of their own making. They're wanting a Messiah that they have their mind set on now. Uh, they had a Savior in mind, um, but they had a Savior that they were wanting, not one that they could see they were ultimately needing. And I think there's something we need to learn from this Palm Sunday crowd here in Jerusalem. That we too can be people who we can want a savior of our own making. We can create in our mind a savior at times we want. 
but it can be so drastically different than who the biblical Jesus is, the Savior that we need. And so uh, today we want to talk about this, that Jesus may not always be the Savior the crowds want, but he's always the Savior that we need. So if I can, I just want to pray for us uh, to prepare our hearts for our time in John chapter 12. So if you would pray with me. Father God, we uh, come to your word now uh, with our hearts open. Uh, We're ready to feast on your word. Lord, we're reminded often that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so God, would you feed us from your word today? Would you encourage us where we need encouraged from it? Would you convict us where we need convicting from it? But God, would you guide this time as we open your word together? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're going to jump in here in John chapter 12, verse 12. But uh, it's a bit of an abrupt entry point for us. So we need to understand a bit of the context of what happened before uh, we're jumping into it here. Uh, Jesus had just come back to a town just outside of Jerusalem called Bethany. And this is the town that uh, not too long before, he had raised a dead guy from the tomb. He had raised Lazarus. He he had called Lazarus out of the tomb. Uh, Jesus had now come back to Bethany and uh, there's a feast. There is a dinner. There's a celebration that Jesus is back to town. And uh, Jesus is eating with Mary and with Martha and with Lazarus. And word gets around that Jesus is there. And word even, it seems, gets to Jerusalem that Jesus is there. And so people come out. They make the short trip out to Bethany. Because if you, uh, if you got a guy at a dinner who raised someone from the dead and you got the formerly dead guy there, people are going to want to come get a glimpse of this. And so um, this is what has just happened. We now turn the attention on to the events of the next day. And that's where we pick it up here in verse 12. So John 12 verse 12 says this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so we just got to stop there and understand a bit of what's going on here. What is this large crowd? What's this feast John is talking about? Um, This is in, uh, all of these events are happening in the midst of the Passover celebration. Uh, People are coming back to Jerusalem from all over the land of Israel to celebrate the Passover. And when it said that uh, there was a large crowd there, we have to understand there was a large crowd there. Um, Many scholars, archaeologists, think that in the time of Jesus, Jerusalem was probably a town, and it's it's really hard for them to pinpoint, but probably a town on the low end of 40,000 people normally. Some estimate on on the high end, it could have even been as large as 100,000 people. When the Passover uh, festival happened, it's estimated that nearly a million people would have traveled back to the town of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. Now, we got to have some context. Okay, a million people. Is that a lot for a town the size of Jerusalem? Is that a little for the a town of Jerusalem? Um, a million people in old, the old city of Jerusalem, in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, was astronomically large. Uh, Jerusalem in Jesus' day, they estimate, was probably somewhere the size of seven-tenths of a square mile. 
to put this in context, if you've ever been down to Nashville, Indiana in Brown County, Nashville, Indiana is 1.4 square miles. Nashville, Indiana was twice the size of ancient Jerusalem in Jesus' day. Now, picture the next time you're driving into Nashville, Indiana, somewhere in the neighborhoods of a million visitors coming in and moving out within like a week's time frame. I mean, when we read in verse 12 here that the next day there was a large crowd, um, like the Palm Sunday events aren't like 20 people waving palm branches on a bare street. Jerusalem is packed. And Jerusalem is just absolutely buzzing with activity. Uh, think of the last time you have been in like one of the most packed settings of your life. Uh, this week, I was thinking about um, like 2012, attending the Passion Conference in the Georgia Dome. Tens upon tens of thousands of 18 to 25-year-olds, the atmosphere of that. Um, what also came to mind is uh, 1 July 4th, downtown Chicago, Navy Pier, people shoulder to shoulder coming in for the fireworks, leaving the city. Um, this is the type of atmosphere that would have been going on in Jerusalem and the crowds were just astronomical. And so um, when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, like we have to understand the atmosphere, the, the packed nature that would have been happening. We, we have to understand the atmosphere. We have to understand how packed the city of Jerusalem would have been at this time. And so the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so you have a crowd. They hear Jesus is coming from Bethany into Jerusalem. And um, it tells us they're waving something and they're shouting something. And both what they're waving and what they're shouting are deeply significant. Uh, it wasn't just them waving palm branches because like, okay, there's a palm branch, grab that. Let's, let's wave that around. The palm branch had significance. Uh, the palm branch was a sign of victory, and it was a sign of celebration. Um, it, was, it was a symbol that almost represented um, what you would wave when you conquered an enemy. Um, similar to today, we might see uh, a conquering army wave their flag over a land that they had just conquered. The, the palm branch was a symbol of conquering. It was a symbol of victory. It was a symbol of celebration. Um, and a New Testament scholar, a guy by the name of Andreas Kostenberger, he'll even know that a couple decades after this event here, um, there were a group of Jews who were just so sick of Roman rule, and they rose up against the Romans. They were, they were called the insurrectionists, and this created the Jewish wars with Rome. And it was in this time, just a few decades after this event, that these Jewish insurrectionists would begin to mint their own coins, would begin to make their own money. And uh, the symbol that they minted onto these coins was actually the symbol of a palm, a palm branch. It was to communicate, hey, um, we're going to conquer. We're going to have victor over, victory over our rulers. And so um, 
what these what this crowd grabs is very very significant but if we're not quite clear on what they're trying to communicate with the waving of palm branches it becomes clearer when we look at what it is they're shouting hosanna hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord even the king of israel they're shouting hosanna uh, hosanna means oh lord save us um, hosanna is a cry for a messianic king a savior king and that's what they're saying here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so this is like an electric scene. Uh, this crowd believes what they have coming in right now is their Messiah king, their savior king. And we're going, great, that's awesome. They're celebrating Jesus, the Messiah king. Um, I think much of this crowd had a very different idea of what this Messiah King was riding in to do, then, then we get the privilege of understanding thousands of years after this event. But we'll get to that in a minute because we have to understand also how Jesus makes his entry into the city. Um, Jesus only adds to the excitement, the buzz, the anticipation by how he comes into Jerusalem. Pick it up, uh, verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so Jesus, he doesn't come into Jerusalem on this beautiful stallion of a war horse. Uh, he finds a donkey, and he finds a young donkey at that. He hops on its back, and he begins what we now call his triumphal entry. And every devout Jew watching this would have gone, Zechariah 9.9. Like, this is Zechariah 9.9 in our midst. What does Zechariah 9.9 tell us? Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus, in even how he enters Jerusalem, is making the claim. He is saying, I am the Messiah King. I am the Savior King. I am the Messianic King that you need. And so kind of put all of this together. You have Jerusalem packed, 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 packed with devout Jews. Um, you have Jesus riding in on a donkey Fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. You have the crowds gathered along the streets here, waving palm branches, the symbol of conquering, uh, shouting Hosanna, going, Lord, King, Messiah King, Savior King, save us. But what were the crowds wanting saved from? What, were, what was their vision of what this Messiah King would do? Um, the Messiah they wanted was a Messiah to save them from Caesar now. Save us from Roman rule now. Deliver us from Caesar now. The Messiah Jesus knew they needed was a Messiah who would save them from sin forever. The Messianic king that the people wanted, they wanted a national king now. 
Jesus was riding in as an eternal king forever. The people, the crowds, they wanted a conquering king to put Rome to death. Jesus was riding in knowing that he would put himself to death. The crowds had a vision of their messianic king coming in here and conquering. Uh, Jesus knew his messianic mission was, yes, one of conquering, but one of conquering via the path of death, not one of crushing Rome now. And this is so important for us to acknowledge that it's possible for Jesus to become for the crowds a, a savior they want him to be and not the savior they need him to be. And I think there's something we even need to learn from the Palm Sunday crowd on the streets of Jerusalem for us today. That we too can fall into a trap of making Jesus a Messiah of our wanting instead of Jesus being the Messiah he said he would be and the Messiah that we ultimately need. What does this look like in our day? How do the crowds in our day, how do we even fall victim to um, making Jesus a savior of our wanting and not the one we need? I want to just highlight a couple of those. Let's talk about three saviors the crowds may want Jesus to be. Uh, The first one I would identify for our day is this, is a a take the pain away savior. Uh, Now, we all know and agree Jesus is powerful enough to take the pain away. He can intervene into any situation. We should bring our pain before him. He hears our cries. I believe he delights to meet with us in the midst of our pain. But if we make Jesus a savior who is always just supposed to take our pain away, we miss out on some of the things I think he promises us during his ministry on earth. Matthew 5 tells us, blessed are the persecuted. Um, John 16 tells us in this world we will have tribulation. John 15 tells us if he was persecuted, we are certainly going to be persecuted as well. See, if we believe that Jesus is supposed to be a take all my pain away savior all the time, we find our faith in really challenging places when the sickness doesn't leave. And when the thing we've been praying about doesn't have the fairy tale ending, when the pain actually doesn't leave this side of eternity. If we believe that Jesus, if we make him, if we want him to be a savior who is always taking the pain away, like it can really shipwreck a faith when the pain remains. Now to encourage us, the blessing of this is we do have a Savior who takes the pain away, whether in this life or in the one to come. But I think if we're not careful, we can fall in to this clamoring of the crowds who always just want Jesus to be a take the pain away from me Savior. And I just don't think that's the Savior he said he promised that he would be. It might be a savior at time we want him to be, but it's not ultimately the savior we desperately need him to be. Here's another one. Three saviors 
the crowds may want Jesus to be. The second one is this, a make me prosperous savior. Now, like, don't get me started on this. Well, I guess I'm getting myself started on this, so I'll go on it. The prosperity gospel is damaging at best and damning at worst. Uh, the prosperity gospel that says, um, if I come to Christ, everything in my life should always be up and to the right. A bank account should be up and to the right. Stocks up and to the right. Health always up and to the right. But Jesus never promised to be that kind of savior. In fact, when a would-be follower once walked up to him, we see this in Luke chapter 9, he said, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, here's the deal. A fox, a fox knows where it's sleeping tonight. Um, birds know where they're sleeping tonight. I don't even know where I'm going to sleep tonight. Jesus was homeless for much of his ministry. And if we have this belief that following Jesus is always to be up to the right, bank account higher, the next car being nicer, the next house being bigger, he's just, that's not a savior he ever said he would be. It might be a savior we want him to be, but it's not the savior we need him to be. And I know so many of us listening to this, we agree. We go, yeah, the prosperity gospel, it's awful. And, and we know that this isn't who Jesus had called us to be. But here's where our theology really hits the road. What's our response when there's a midlife move back into our kid's basement? Because we've lost everything. We have nothing left to our name. We're completely financially devastated. And we find ourselves in a humbling place back in our kid's basement. Are we bitter with the Lord in that time? And now listen, let's be realistic. That'd be hard. I'm not saying that we wouldn't battle the sadness and the emotions of that. But are we bitter? Do we say, Lord, you were supposed to show up in this. Lord, how could you bring us to this place? I think that's a very practical example. Those are practical things we have to wrestle with. Are we making Jesus into a savior of our wanting? Or are we seeing him for who he is, the savior we ultimately need? Uh, a third savior of the crowds of our day uh, that we can't fall into is this, um, a keep me safe savior. If we believe that Jesus is to always be the savior of our safety and the savior of our spouse's safety and the savior of our kids' safety and the savior of everyone we love's safety, we have to know that Jesus never promised that. In fact, he looked at his, uh, a group of disciples he was sending out and he said, uh, I'm about to send you out as sheep among wolves. Uh, now, across the road from where I live, there's a, a sheep right now and she's got a little baby lamb and the little baby lamb is always by her side and I just look out at the sheep and her lamb and um, I just in light of preparing for this I was like what if a pack of wolves showed up uh, they don't stand too much of a chance he says that um, he's sending us out like sheep among wolves that's dangerous that's not always safe where is our safety in that we have a great shepherd to protect us but if we, if we think that Jesus is a savior of our wanting, a keep me safe all the time savior, there's no place in our theology for a story like this. Uh, recently, I'm talking to a chaplain in Indianapolis. He's telling me of a guy in northern Indiana who um, 
felt the Lord was calling them to a country in Africa. And he packs up his life. He packs up his family. I can't remember how many kids he had, but he had a, a whole bunch of kids. They sell all their things. They ship over what they need. They move to Africa. And somewhere in the range of like 10 days into being in Africa, he's riding in the back of a car and he's shot and he's killed. I don't know why. None of us know why. Why in God's sovereignty does he allow someone to follow his call, move his young family over only to like 10 days into his missionary journey to see his life ended? We don't have answers for that. But if we believe that Jesus is to always be a keep me safe savior, we become disenfranchised with a story like that. We might even become bitter with a story like that. But the fact is that Jesus never said that. He's not a savior of our wanting. He is the savior that we ultimately need. And we're going to talk about before we end, who is Jesus the savior that we need? But before we do, I just want to take some time for you guys to talk about this. For you as a family to talk about this. For you as small group members to talk about this. Where is this convicting? Where, uh, where have you made, maybe made Jesus a savior of your wanting and lost sight of the savior that he said he'd be, the one we ultimately need? Where are we similar in some ways to this crowd on the streets in Jerusalem who are saying, we want a Messiah king, but we want a Messiah king to do this versus Jesus writing in and saying, no, I'm a Messiah King coming in to accomplish something so much greater and something you ultimately need. And so uh, take some time right now. Uh, do any of these three false saviors hit you in any certain ways? Um, where might you be convicted that you've been looking to Jesus to be a savior you want him to be and not ultimately remembering and seeing him as the savior we need him to be. So take some time to talk about that. And then we'll talk about and worship together over the Savior that he is and the Savior we need him to be. And so we've seen that the crowds are lining the streets. They're clamoring for a Messiah King, but they want a Messiah King to save them from Caesar now. Jesus is riding in on a much different agenda than that. Something grander, something uh, uh, to be someone that they ultimately need. And we just talked about the way we too can make Jesus into Messiah who we want at times, but and lose sight of the one that we need. But it's important to realize that even the disciples here, yeah, the crowd's confused on this, but even the disciples here aren't totally sure what's all happening in this scene. Verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And so it says like the disciples are kind of in this scene going like, okay, I don't know all that's happening right now, but they're just traveling along with Jesus. But it's after Jesus is glorified that they get this whole new perspective. They get this lens now to look back on this scene and to interpret it and go, I get it. I see it. He was riding in as the Messiah King, 
the Messiah King of all of humanity. Um, it goes on to tell us uh, more about the crowd. Verse 17, it says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and had raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see uh, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so it says there's this uh, group of people who were actually in Bethany when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and they're spreading the news of this thing like crazy. And John tells us this is why so many in the crowd were coming to see Jesus. They were coming because a great sign um, savior had just ridden into town. They were coming as sign seekers. But throughout the Gospels, we're told over and over again that a sign-seeking faith is not a life-enduring faith. They might have been coming looking for a sign. They might have been coming because they'd heard of a great sign. But were they coming for the Messiah who ultimately their heart would need? But in the midst of all of this excitement, you can see the foreshadowing here. The Pharisees are stirred. They're like, look, the whole world is going after this guy. This is going to put into motion the events leading up to what we're going to remember together on Good Friday and the events that we'll ultimately celebrate next Resurrection Sunday. But I want to talk about this. Uh, Jesus may not always be the Savior the crowds want. He might not always be, in certain seasons, a Savior we want. What I mean by that is if we're in a place where we just want him to make life easier, less painful, better, he never promised to do that. But here's what we do know. He is always the Savior that we need. How is Jesus the Savior we need? Just a few days from this event, many of the people who are shouting Hosanna this day are going to be shouting, crucify him. Because that's what happens when you make Jesus into a savior of your own making, when you make Jesus into the savior you want him to be. When he doesn't deliver what you want, you then turn. You abandon ship. You say, oh, Jesus didn't do for us what I thought he would do. And this is what so many in the crowd do. They shout, crucify, crucify. And what they don't even know as they're chanting these words is they're chanting the very thing they ultimately needed a Savior to do for them. He may not always be the Savior we want in certain moments. But here's what we can know today. He is the Savior we need. He is the Savior who came and lived a perfect life that we can never live and died a criminal's death that we deserve to die. Who shed his blood on a cross, who was laid dead in a tomb, and then who just three days later would rise victorious over sin and over death and make an invitation to the lost and broken world, to us, Whoever will believe in me will have eternal life. This is the Savior we need. 
We need the Savior who is not going to make always, life always easier, better here and now. We need a Savior who's going to reconcile us to a holy God where we will enjoy being in God's presence for all of eternity. That's a Savior we need. That's who Jesus came to be. That's who the Messianic King was riding into Jerusalem on that day. And that's who the Messianic King is who we worship today. That's the real Jesus. That is the King of Kings. That is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That is the Prince of Peace. That is the uh, wonderful Counselor. That is the mighty God. That is the Savior whom we worship and the one every heart desperately needs. And so I just look at you again this week and I'll say, if you do not know that Savior, you're like, what do you mean, know him? I know about Jesus. What do you mean, know him? Jesus wants a personal relationship. He wants to know you. And the Bible tells us whoever calls on him in faith, whoever calls on the name of Jesus, believing that Jesus came to die for their sin, if you call on him today, if you turn from sin and self and embrace him, uh, believe on him as Lord today, he promises to save to reconcile, to redeem you, to buy you out of your sin by the price of his own blood and to bring you into a right relationship with himself. One that doesn't promise you life on this earth always being better and richer and grander, but one that promises you the greatest riches of eternity for eternity to come for the ages to come. Do you know, not the Savior you always want him to be, do you know the Jesus who you need him to be, the one he said he was? And so I want to close our time together today with a time for us to pray together. And here are the things, um, here are the areas I want to close our time today with a time for us to pray together. And here are the areas I just want us to move through in this prayer time. And we'll give you a prompt to these on the screen to guide you. But first and most importantly, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, that the very first thing you would do in this prayer time is surrender your life to him. That you tell him, Jesus, I see my sin and I see my need for a savior. I have made you into this like fake savior, this bad savior. When, I've, when now I see that you have come to ultimately be the greatest savior I ever need. The one who saved me from our sin. The one who can make me right with God. That you would give your life to Jesus. That you would surrender to him in this time. And trusting the spirit to work then once everyone in every living room were meeting has a relationship with Jesus Christ, I just want to guide you through these times of prayer together. Would you spend time in adoring and worshiping him for the messianic king who he is, the one we need? In this time, I'd encourage you, turn to passages of scripture about Jesus. Worship your way, pray your way through these scriptures together. Thank him, adore him, worship him for being the savior that we need. Uh, after that, spend some time in confession. Be raw, be transparent, be vulnerable. Confess how you've been disappointed, um, 
You've maybe even been angry. You've been sad that he hasn't shown up in a way that you've wanted him to show up, but then you're realizing maybe it's a way that he never promised he would ultimately deliver you from. And again, I say that with full belief that we should bring our pain to him. We should bring hardship to him. And that in his goodness and his love for us, he seeks to deliver us from those. But what if he never does? Do you still see him as the Savior, the one true Savior, worthy of the allegiance of your whole life? And that's how I want us to end our time of prayer. I want us to together declare out loud our allegiance to him. Jesus, you are the Messiah King. And whether you ever deliver me from this trial I want delivered from or not, I will follow you. Whether you ever make this aspect of life better or not, I will follow you. Whether um, you do in this specific circumstance what I want you to do, whether you do it or not, I will follow you. Because you are the Savior that I need. He may not always be the Savior the crowds want. And he's certainly not the Savior always that our contemporary crowds want. But believer, remember, Jesus is always the Savior that we need. So Harvest, you're loved and you are sent. I just commission us now into this time of prayer together. And I hope you have a great week. We'll see you for Easter next Sunday. <laughs>